Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Lust in Tooth and Claw, a paranormal erotic anthology, written by Devi and Sevi, Ina Morata, Catherine Nevitt, and Esimo Tipi. Paranormal Horror with a Nip of Romance. Sink your teeth into a quartet of lusty novellas. In the third volume of the Lust series, our authors bring you atmospheric tales of creatures sharp in tooth and claw and hotter than hot. Werewolves, vampires, the she, plus a side helping of gods and demons, deliver erotic horror with a nip of romance. Clara Randall has a problem. Vampires keep attacking her. They haven't killed her yet, but a girl's luck has to run out sometime. In Devian Sevi's Blood and Chaos, Max Forsyth can protect Clara from other predators, but can he protect her from himself? Even the gods are betting against them. In Leanne and She and the Wordsmith by Ina Morata, struggling writer Andy Marshall has just secured a place as writer-in-residence on a tiny Irish island. It's not exactly the position he's been expecting. When a beautiful muse offers to seduce him and gift him with all the success he desires, will he agree to pay the price? In Catherine Nevitt's Bitten by the Wolf, Lily is a loner in a dead-end job. When she is attacked in the street by a giant wolf, her life will never be the same. The Alpha wants her for his mate, and that's not an honor she's allowed to refuse. When the Alpha's brother helps her escape, can they survive the savagery of pack justice? In Esimo Teepee's Panic Room, Matt and Miranda get away from it all, taking time out of their busy lives to reconnect. What could beat the romance of a remote cabin by a tranquil lake over a full moon weekend of sexy fun? And then they meet Fabian. Their lives will never be the same, if they survive. And now for your listening pleasure. An excerpt from Lust in Tooth and Claw. Leanne and She and the Wordsmith Written by Ina Morata Chapter 1 I hadn't realized quite what kind of a place this was going to be. A quiet dismay creeps up through my legs and lodges itself in the pit of my stomach as I step out into the fresh air. Fairies and a bad crossing. Now I know why I never go anywhere. Or maybe it could also have something to do with the absence of Dosh in my bank account. I have at least been preparing to release my credit card from its mothballs for the week and take the consequences on the chin. But it's not looking good for action, is it? The best action I've managed so far was a quick cocktug in the men's toilets. Well, it was stroke that or my ego as I bought stuff I didn't really need in the duty-free. But I left it a bit late and had to leave myself half-finished before they came looking for extraneous passengers who should be getting ready to leave the ferry. It's my own fault, I suppose. I had asked about a quiet place on that website. And a quiet place is what I've got, by the look of it. Maybe I should have been a bit more specific. 
a quiet place where I can at least fool the residents and guests, or at least a field full of cows or sheep, into thinking I'm writing something profound. Where I can meet a woman and we can fuck each other's brains out if I feel like it. Somewhere that costs pretty much nothing because there are so few facilities, and where the bedroom is the only option for a bit of fun. A break, just for a few days, from the confines of my tiny apartment in central London, and the self-torture of endless empty promises I make to continue with the excruciatingly poor draft of my book. Some reading, armed with a compilation of ancient Greek and Roman mythology on my Kindle, as always. The hope of filling six empty notebooks with at least some inspiration, and a rather aptly timed book on Walpurgisnacht to keep me entertained when the woman who would be a dream to fuck all night long, every night, turns out to be precisely that. Not too sure they'd have printed my cheeky, or just plain desperate, offer if I'd said that. Or, how about... Andy Marshall, unheard of author, except by readers of barely known history and speculative fiction easings, and the odd literary magazine where the editor must have felt sorry for me or got so sick of my submissions that publishing one seemed like the only way to shut me up, seeking any kind of freebie holiday so he can get away from the racket of the railway lines outside his bedroom window offers himself as writer-in-residence, or wishful classicist, and will consider gigolo if the pay is right, will take payment in decent free food if offered. Strange how I decided not to advertise in quite that way. Still, the letter came as a surprise. A peculiar spider-like scrawl actually offering a writer-in-residence position for the last week in October on the southern coast of Ireland. Shows what a bare-faced cheek can get you. Daren't imagine what the Miss Leannon who wrote to me is like, though. Sixty years older than me, with a hotel teeming with long-term residents, whom she insists on calling friends, and who want me to give talks all day long about how to write knowing my luck. And then they'll ask my opinion on their work, like I'm an expert. Oh, hell. The cab costs a fortune from the ferry port, so I suppose there is something to pay for after all. I get out, a little baffled at why the only thing I can see is water, shingle, and a sky that begins to stripe lavender in the late afternoon. Several spots of rain splut on my arm as I stand there in the biting air, while the driver hauls my suitcase out and dumps it, wheels sideways, on the dampening ground. As I scoop up the case, balancing it on rickety wheels, one of which is determined to behave like the proverbial supermarket trolley and veer off in a different direction to the others, the driver waggles a hand at the sea. That's where you need to be, right enough, over there. I squint in the direction of the man's finger. I can't see much. What am I looking at? Can you tell me where the hotel is? 
You do know where it is, don't you? You're not just winding me up? What I want to say is, you're not just dumping me here and buggering off, having scammed me for 50 euros? But I daren't, in case he vanishes and leaves me stranded. The rain spits about randomly, blowing onto my face in the miserable autumnal air. I suppose this is what I deserve for accepting a freebie right at the end of October. I watch him waggle his nicotine-stained finger impatiently into the mist. It hides most of the late afternoon view of the coastline, and I wonder what it will look like in a couple of hours when it's completely dark. I imagine it as a giant blanket coming to suffocate me without my even realizing it until it's too late. It gives me the shivers. No, I tell you, that's where you need to be now. See that dark building over there? I try and follow the line of his finger as it crooks and points down the beach. I stifle a laugh, finding that I can just make out a sort of dark blob through the mist Every time it dips and shifts as the waves roll, but it's impossible to tell what it is. Well, that's the hotel, see? You'll need Joseph to take you over there. Joseph, ruining my literary expectations of an old man with a dirty white sailor's cap and rowing a leaky little wooden dinghy, turns out to be a lad of about eighteen with a motorboat. I've no clue how he knows where he's going. The darkness covers everything before you comprehend it's happening at this time of year, and it's pulling in thick and fast now. Nevertheless, he bounces us through the peaking and troughing waves, twitching his nose and biting his lips together, choking on a snorting, arrogant teenage laugh every time I look like I'm going to vomit as the boat lurches and my entire left side gets soaked. I'm really regretting the tuna sandwich and chocolate dessert that I had on the ferry. And it's not just my stomach that's grossly underwhelmed by this dreadful excursion. Each waft of mist in my face stings my eyes, and I groan, suffering like a prepubescent boy being forced to take a shower. By the time we reach the little jetty and I wrestle with my suitcase over the craggy rocks and up onto the grass, I know I must look every inch a real monster of Scandinavian mythology and not the ridiculous pretense I'm making of sophisticated writer-in-residence which is starting to feel more and more of a stupid, futile idea as the minutes pass. There's a dim view of a gravel pathway in front of me, winding round to the left and lit now only by the onset of several stars. The sky, I notice, has gone from a kind of sexy yet rained-upon purple to a tar-coat black, now totally pissed upon by this bloody rain. I try and unstick my sodden clothes from my body. I thought, maybe only the sea-salted side might look like a drowned rat, that I could angle myself carefully if I spot a woman that gives me a second glance, or, to be honest, the miracle of a first one. But no, I'm utterly drenched. 
I need a woman to appear before me, clasp her mouth over mine as she slides one hand under my shirt and the other into my boxer shorts, then whispers, Oh, I do like wet drips. Despite my own sarcasm, my cock stands and twitches about inside my clothes. I don't really care what she says if she shoves her hand down there and squeezes. What a lovely way to end this shitty day. A naked woman sitting on my thighs, her hair draping around her shoulders, her hand sliding up and down my shaft, fingers tantalizing the tip, dabbing at the pre-cum and wiping it around my crown as she licks her lips. Oh, fuck. I'm leaking in my boxers. That mouth working its way down me, tongue trailing down my belly until it reaches my balls. Taking each one between the lips and plucking them like ripe plums, then paying service to my cock. Running itself around my ridge, tongue toying with my slit, engulfing my entire head. Joseph digs me in the ribs and points me and my untimely erection in the direction of the gravel that all but vanishes from sight in the darkness. Hmm. The mysterious case of the disappearing pathway. I'll write that down later. I doubt I'll use it, but it'll be something in the notebook. That's where you need to be now, sir. So it is. Be a bit lonely, though, up there. I nearly ask him why that might be, but, standing here in the dark, beginning to shudder as the cold gets in between my wet layers, I'm not sure that I want to know in advance. So, singularly wet, scruffy, and looking like I would be the sort to skip out on paying the bill, if indeed I was paying one, I bump my case along the path, hoping the wheel doesn't get lodged in between the stones so that a careless yank doesn't tug it off the stubborn suitcase. There are no lights, except some orange cat's eyes that line one edge of the path, laying sleeping and redundant in the darkness. I follow the curl of the apparently never-ending gravel where, the further I walk, the more the sky seems to be clinging on to the last remainder of daytime. A shape comes into view, a large building, looming like the stuff of too many late-night indulgences on cigarettes, whiskey, and endless horror films, and crushing the beautiful remnants of the hazy, purple, fairy sky by thrusting its shadowy body at me. Its high, pointed roof cuts through the lavender nightline and into the blackness like a dagger mounted on a plinth. There appear to be no lights on, and I begin imagining all sorts of cheesy openings to pieces of writing about a dark building on a deserted island. So when I do actually notice a glimmer of light reflected against the trunks of a group of large trees, I'm a bit disappointed. On quick yet careful inspection, it becomes apparent that the lights are on fully around the back. Not quite so cliched after all. I don't need cliché. 
I need fresh ideas, new and exciting poetic forms, a paycheck. More than that. My hand strays to my groin, and I'm grateful for the darkness. The uneasiness of the trip, the unexpectedness of the crossing, a tiny island. Who is going to come to a writer on a tiny island? Not knowing what this place is, and being unable to tell its story clearly, all of it has got me excited. The need to know more? It arouses my brain, rouses and goads both the storyteller side and that of the closet classicist, the mental arousal sending my cock on an upward journey. It's pulling hard against my damp boxer shorts. I can't leave it standing there like that. One more bit of mystery to inflame it, and it might fire of its own accord. It needs attention before I bang on the door. Grinding it through my trousers with the heel of my hand, it fast becomes full and hard again, despite the rain clamping down around me, and I wonder if I should just duck for shelter behind one of the trees and finish the job properly. My balls tingle, and I'm emitting short, sharp groans every time my hand rolls over the ridge of the crown. As much as I want to go inside and warm up my body, I hope no one opens the door. My mind is hot enough for all of me right now. A woman sitting covered in a pile of books, untold tales, only her bare shoulders and head visible, the pile building up until I can bear it no more and thrust the books this way and that to expose the main body of her story. Thrusting. Nearly there. An opening for me. Take it. I fight the urge. Thoughts of my latest submissions sitting there in a slush pile, or probably in a waste paper basket, calming the urge, but not before a sticky trail creates another patch. My boxer shorts clamp cold against my skin this time, the night air blowing through the nylon of my best trousers and chilling the one part of me that had stayed dry until now. On mounting the two steps to the front door, the porch light flickers on. Unsure whether I'm really meant to knock or just walk in, I opt for attempting the latter. Thankfully, although it hasn't the obvious London hotel-like appearance I'm used to walking by and not paying to use, it does at least behave like one. Opening the solid wood door, I find myself in a reception area of sorts. A cubicle to the right, more like a cupboard really, appears to be what passes as a reception desk, although without a current occupant behind it. Several tub chairs and a couple of big armchairs, all on a huge rug woven with a Celtic cross in the center, and all currently empty, gather in a close, haphazard semicircle on the other side of the room around a coal fire. The only person who appears to be on the premises, at least in the parts I can detect, 
is a man sitting a third of the way up the stairs, so completely absorbed in carving away at the substantial oak spindles that he doesn't bother glancing up to see who's just walked in. In the absence of anyone else, I decide that I might glean some information from him, even if I only find out that there's no showers or the hot water runs out by 9am. Tucking my suitcase next to an armchair, thankful that its wheels have remained intact, I approach the staircase. Are you the guest? The writer? The man never looks up, just continues chipping away with the most delicate little tool I've ever seen. It's a chisel, I think, but so tiny. That's right, Andy Marshall. Is the... Miss Leannon. Is she around, so I can introduce myself? I get no answer. So I push it. Just a little bit. Is she your mistress? What the hell induced me to say that? Where do I think I've come? To some 17th century country house, running amuck with randy servants and even randier owners? I have another go. I mean, do you service work for her? Even I shake my head at my gutter brain, wincing at the bad word choice. Nothing unusual there, according to the rejection slips. The man looks up for the first time and stares me straight in the face. He's probably no older than me, and certainly no older than thirty-five. It's impossible not to notice that, on the mention of the word mistress, the crotch of his trousers jerk with some violence, but he still doesn't answer. Poor man. It looks like she just might be. As if he's been entirely worn out by days and nights of seeing to the needs of this owner of his, whom I can only imagine. My imagination characterizes her. Stern and a couple of decades older than him, constantly wanting, exhausting his body with the incessant off-duty times of pushing her in a chair and pinning her legs outwards while he laps at her pussy from its swollen and unhooded clit down her sopping folds to her oozing entrance. Or, worn out by her insatiable demands for his cock inside her cunt, while he creates a lactic acid buildup in his chisel arm, ramming her with a dildo in her other musky little hole. Or by... Oh, I wish I'd not mentioned it now. The man doesn't answer the question, neither does he introduce himself. He doesn't even flicker his eyes as my hands move as surreptitiously as I can to cover the zip in my trousers. He directs another question at me, or through me. It's difficult to tell which. Wonder why. I raise my eyebrows and find myself with a squirming shiver up my back. Why what? Yes, I'm cold, but, well, it's him. There's something really creepy about him. There's no other way of explaining it. Well, there probably is, but I'm fucked if I know what. <laughs> fucked even if I don't know what. Now that would be nice. 
Not by him. That wasn't what I meant. Oh, bugger me. I can't even have a conversation with myself without cocking up. I must concentrate on what he's saying. Wonder why she brought you here. I thought she would have waited. His face drops towards his knees, and he takes a strange feeling in my belly with it. For some reason, my insides plunge like a rock, landing somewhere uncomfortable. She could have waited. It takes him a while, but eventually he writes himself and explains to me that he has full charge of the keys to the rooms, and he's left my key on the counter so I can take it whenever I'm ready. You're up in the top, attic room. Thought a writer would like that kind of thing. She told me to look after you. If she says it, I do it. That's the deal. So you are an employee, then? I look at the ghostly state of him, the way he can barely stand without the aid of the staircase, the way he keeps gripping his stomach. The whole sight makes my skin crawl. But I have a strange kind of sympathy for him down in that weird feeling that's now lodged itself in the pit of my stomach. You work for her? He looks at me with wide, sunken, deathly eyes. Oh, yes, I work for her. Because of her. I prove myself to her at every turn. She is everything. You'll see. And right then, I don't appreciate the full significance of what he tells me. All I can think is that, if all this proving himself is the kind that my dirty little writer's mind imagines it is, no wonder he looks so knackered. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Lust in Tooth and Claw. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com. 